So like I said, I've loved this series and I'm really excited about where we're going today. And so I'm just going to dive right in. It's in your bulletin, the scripture for today. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out. Philip was one of the original 12 apostles of Jesus. He was with Jesus pretty much for his entire earthly ministry. And uh, he gets this uh, clarity of calling that he's supposed to leave where he is. That's what happens when an angel shows up. You get clarity of calling, right? So he gets this clarity of calling uh, that he's supposed to leave where he is to go from Jerusalem about 60 miles south to Gaza. To one of the, southern, the most southerly of the five Philistine cities near the Mediterranean coast. That's where he's supposed to go, Gaza. Gaza was originally a Canaanite settlement that came under the control of the ancient Egyptians uh, before it was con com uh, conquered by the, the Philistines and became the, one of their principal cities, one of their principal outposts. Gaza then fell to the Israelites in 1000 BC. It became part of the Assyrian Empire in 730 BC. Alexander the Great conquered it in 332 BC. It was Greek, then it was Syrian. Then the Egyptians had it again for a while, and then it was Roman. Why does any of that matter? Let's remember Acts chapter 1, verse 8. That's what the whole book of Acts hinges on and reflects on and repeats over and over again. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus, before he ascends, after his resurrection, looks at his followers and he says, You are going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Go to the different, go to the outcast, go to the far off and see what God can do there. That was the call. And that's repeated over and over and over again in the book of Acts. And so Gaza was outside of the core of the Jewish faith in Judea. It was beyond the rural and marginalized fringes of Samaria. This moment is the moment when Philip gets sent out and he goes to Gaza. This is God's mission to the ends of the earth bursting into life. But what's so fascinating about it, and we're going to read this together, is that on his way, Philip encounters someone that can take the message further than he would ever be able to. Verse 27 continues, on his way, he met, met an Ethiopian eunuch. Kids, if you don't know what a eunuch is, uh, ask your parents after the service, or you can email Dave Burleson. That's dburleson at summitconnect.org. He would be happy to answer that question for you. On his way, he meets an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Kandake, which means queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah, the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. So Philip isn't looking for anyone in particular. He just goes out in, in faith, right? Go to Gaza. And he's like, okay, I'll go. And I love this. I love this because it's so incredibly different than I am. I, I need to know where I'm going. I need a predetermined plan. I got to have a checklist. I got to figure out, like, what are we after? What is the point of us heading out? Why are we doing this? That's why when I go to the grocery store, uh, if I have more than two items, I have to have a list because two things like bread and milk, that'll fit in my head. The third thing, I lose all of it, right? And so I have to, I have, to have a list because if I get home from Publix and I haven't gotten everything that I set out to get, I'm ruined for the day. You can ask Abby, all right? 
I need a predetermined uh, goal. But Philip just sets out. And he believes he'll discover why he's going once he gets where he's been called to go to. He knows enough to go. And it's an active picture of, of what Jesus said to his followers, like actually being lived out. The Great Commission. A lot of us have heard this. Jesus, after his resurrection, says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says. So, therefore, go... And make disciples of all the nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded to you. And surely I'll be with you always to the ends of the age. Except in the original construction in the Greek, the Great Commission doesn't really read like that. We've read it like that and and it's been reproduced and we kind of think of it that way. Go and make disciples. But it doesn't really read like that. In the original Greek, it's a little more like this. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, as you are going... Be disciple-making. As you are going, be disciple-making. As you're living and working and moving, be making time for people so that you can tell them about me and show them what I'm like. That's the Great Commission. As you're moving in the world, be living in a way that points to Jesus. So Philip knew he was supposed to go Go to Gaza, go to the ends of the earth. Jesus had told us, okay, so I can do that. And he knew what the purpose of him going was, that he was going to be a witness, a messenger of the good news. And he knew along the way, because Jesus told him in the Great Commission, along the way he was supposed to be open and available to people to show people Jesus. Remember, in this series, what we've been looking at more than anything else is uh, we've been looking back at the first church to see how they lived and how that can inform how we should be the church today. So there's something right here off the top that we actually have to wrestle with. Are we open? Philip went. He had less than a plan that I'd be comfortable with. But he was open to going. He maybe was even longing to be sent. Are you open? And as he's going, Philip meets someone who's very different than him, but he's open to the idea that the gospel was for him. The gospel that saved him was for him, but it was also for others as well. Are you open? And if you're open, are you available? We're going to see Philip spends time with the eunuch. He gives him something really valuable and something that's in short supply. He gives him time. We're all so busy. The the world moves a thousand miles an hour and begs us to keep up. And so we have these long lists of things we have to do that fall into these really good categories. I've got work. I've got got family. I've maybe got hobbies. I've got uh, kind of pouring into my kids' life so that they can get to their practices and do their things. But to be available to offer time to others, which is clearly something that's important, it may be worth us considering from time to time, do we have to say no to a good thing to be available for a great thing? I mean, Jesus said, uh, this is what you're all made for, right? He said, love the Lord your God with all you've got. Love your neighbors yourself. That's what you're made for. That's what we're all made for. That's the bullseye of life. Head toward that. Get as close to that bullseye as you possibly can. If that's what we're made for, do we have time to be who we're made to be? Or maybe you think, like, I'm open and I'm available, but I don't have enough to give. I mean, if I'm walking down the street and I see someone reading the book of Isaiah and, and, uh, and I'm like, hey, what are you reading? And it's like, I don't know. Can you help me? Nope, but good luck. And when you get it, I'll, let me know. Let me know when you figure out what that thing's all about. I'm sure you'll get it eventually and walk on, right? You might think that because, like, I don't have enough to give. I don't have a seminary degree. 
But have you seen God show up in your life? Ever? Have you ever followed him? Why? What's it like to follow Jesus? People could benefit from the answer to these questions. Be humble, be honest, but share your story. And Jesus, more than once, as he was moving through his ministry, he was on to really important things. Ultimately, it was going to lead him to, to the cross. He'd walk through these cities, and the disciples would try to push him on, and he would find someone in the corner, an outcast that everybody else was ignoring, and he'd be like, what do you want me to do for you? Well, this is a question we should be comfortable with as followers of Jesus, by the way. What do you want me to do for you? And Jesus would ask that. And so if you follow Jesus, you know enough at least to care about others to serve others, to give your story, to loan some hope if you have it, to extend a hand. Philip knew he was called to be a witness, to go to the ends of the earth, and so he went. Are we faithful with what Jesus asks us to do, or do we stop short when it gets uncomfortable? Are you open? And if you're open, are you available? Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asks, and then Verse 31, how can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth? The eunuch asked, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here's water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? I love that question, by the way. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. This is a quick turn of events. The Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of a, a royal woman from northern Africa, has been in Jerusalem for worship, and he's returning home. He's sitting in a chariot, and he's reading Isaiah 53. Philip, open and available, shows up, asks the Ethiopian, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I? No one's, no one's ever taught me about this. I have a, no, I don't understand. And Philip starts with that very text, and he tells him the good news about Jesus, tells him the gospel. And then the Ethiopian is baptized. They go down into the water, and, and he's baptized. So again, this is a story about the church through the Spirit being faithful to Jesus' words. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. And Samarian to the ends of the earth. But let's not be confused. This is certainly about the gospel going out geographically to the ends of the earth, all the way to us. We're here because people took that seriously, by the way. It's certainly about that. But it is also certainly a reminder to the early church and to us today that God's love is for all, regardless of ethnicity or color or religious upbringing or amount of knowledge or understanding someone brings to the table. This is Luke, the writer of Acts, saying, I want you to imagine for a moment as you're reading this, imagine the person that is most different from you than, than, than anyone else, culturally, ethnically, from their understanding, from their upbringing, as different as possible. Now, remember, the gospel is for you, the reader. 
but it's also for that person that's more different from you than anyone you can possibly think of. Jesus, the sacrifice Isaiah was talking about in chapter 53, it came for all, and any message that states otherwise is not the gospel. So the gospel goes out through people empowered by the Spirit to anyone and everyone, not just as an idea to agree with, but as an active sign for the world to see. This is God at his best on display. That's what makes baptism so significant and so powerful is that it's an active sign for the world to see of people making a public declaration of their personal commitment to follow Jesus. Seven years ago, almost to the day, my son was baptized. Uh, There's a picture of him. Uh, He's as tall as me now. I don't have to bend down. He'll be bending down to look at me pretty soon, I think. It was a great day. Every single time I get to be a part of people taking that step, it is so significant, it's so humbling that I get to be a part. It blows me away that I get to be a part of that. And every baptism we do together is so fun because family from different campuses are coming together and we eat food together and you meet new friends that are part of your church family and you connect with old friends uh, that are part of your church family and then we worship together and then people make this public declaration. It's always significant, but this day, man... There was a hurricane 90 miles off the coast, and so the waves, you can see, they're pretty, pretty rough. But the whole day, the, the tide was just moving in and out this really dramatic way. And so some, we'd be standing in the water, you know, knee deep, and then all of a sudden it would just be gone. It'd be like the water would be 10 feet back there, and we'd just be standing on sand. And then this big wave would start heading our way, and so we'd get the questions set. And we, I'm going to talk about those questions in a second. We'd get them all set, and then like we'd have to time it just right. And it's like, okay, right when the wave hits, put them down because the, they're going to get swept away. And so I was like, and Father's the Holy Spirit, bam, and it's kind of good, see ya. And, and then we get them to head out. Um, and Caleb almost did get swept away. Um, but, but anybody that walks down in the water, this day or any other day we do baptism, we ask them three questions. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? And is it your intention to follow Him all the days of your life? Those are gospel questions. And so this account of Philip and the Ethiopian, it has us wrestling with, are we open? And if we're open, are we available? But it also is begging us to wrestle with the gospel. That first question, do you believe that Jesus is the son of God? Jesus himself, when he was baptized, uh, the, the gospel writer Mark tells us, when he goes down into the water of the Jordan and is baptized, it says when he comes up out of the water, the, the heavens ripped open and the spirit of God descended on Jesus like a dove. And then a voice from heaven said, this is my son. With him I am well pleased. And we might hear that and go, well, yeah, that's just the voice of God telling us something we already know. He's the son of God. That's great. But the sky's ripping over and that would have been shocking that day, right? But it was probably the second most shocking thing. That voice from God and those words from God were probably the most shocking. Because remember the story. Jesus was born in scandal. His mother Mary had become pregnant before she was married. He was poor. He was born in a barn. And people who interacted with him as he grew, you can imagine they kind of probably spoke on the sides like, hey, did you hear? Did you hear about Jesus? Joseph's not even his father. No, Mary doesn't even know who the father is. She cooked up some story about how God's the father. I think she's crazy, right? Not very kingly. He was the illegitimate son of nobodies. That's how the community thought about him. 
except God's love is loud and it breaks through all that type of noise. It's loud enough to rip the skies open. The Gospel of Mark begins with the question, who is Jesus? And God simply says, this is my son. And the rest of the scriptures unfold for us the fullness of what that means, the fullness of Jesus being the son of God. The scriptures tell us that, that Jesus was God in the flesh, that the that divinity wrapped itself in mortality in Jesus. And Jesus knew it. He himself said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says in another place, I and the Father are one. And so what Jesus is communicating to us is that God had shown up on earth to dwell with people as he said he would throughout the Old Testament. So we might ask why. Why why did God show up? Why did he come to dwell with us? Well, Paul picks up in Philippians 2. He says, here's why. Jesus was in the very nature of God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to for his own advantage. He made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He humbled himself to obedience, even to the point of death on a cross. We live in a world where people have all kinds of ideas about how to fix things. And they can be broadcast and they can be retweeted and reposted. And a lot of those ideas, if you've experienced anything like I experience on social media, a lot of those ideas are critical and negative. There's a big difference between being just critical and negative or having a way to make things right. And Jesus had both. He wasn't just critical about what was wrong in the world. He came with a way to make things right. He didn't come to set the world right by paying sinners back, which is all of us, by the way. Sin, uh, anything that, that separates you from God, even for a moment, separates you from others, even for a moment, or separates you from being the per- person that God has created you to be, even for a moment, that is sin. So that's all of us. But he didn't come to pay sinners back for the wrong that we've done. He came to win us back from sin and from death by taking both of those on his shoulders all the way to the cross. John says of Jesus when he's coming down, before he's baptized in the Jordan, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's drawing from Isaiah. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Some of you know that uh, Abby and I are... uh, training for a marathon. Abby did the Chicago Marathon last year and she's awesome and I'm so proud of her and it was great to cheer her on and now she's roped me in for, for a marathon. She's doing her second and she's, I don't know, it just happened one day. Uh, and so we've been doing a lot of running, like a lot of running, <laughs> a lot. That's um, more than I would choose to uh, do to get ready, to get better, you know, to be prepared for the race and on our uh, course that we, you know, our long runs, Toward the end of our long run on the Katy Way Trail, there's this little wooden bridge. And we've taken to where it's kind of a hard section of, of the, we call it the death mile, actually. Uh, so uh, just to give you an idea of how we think about it. And uh, so there's this bridge, and we start to say audibly, it's almost like a chant now at this point. It's like, just make it to the bridge. Just make it to the bridge. Just make it to the bridge, right? When Jesus came into the world... He came to become the bridge. And I know if you grew up in the church, that little place in your brain that holds all the VBS memories just fired. I know, like, he's the bridge. Oh, I've heard that analogy before. Yeah, I get it. He laid down his life to make a way for us to be who we should be, to be where we should be, and to be where we want to be when we're thinking clearly in right relationship with God. But here's the thing, and this is important. Jesus didn't stand at a distance and say, just make it to the bridge. Just make it to the bridge. He brought the bridge to us. 
And as we're trying, he says, look, I know you're exhausted. I know you're tired. I know you don't think you have it in you. I know you think you can't make it. I made it to you. So when I look at the scriptures and I look at the life of Jesus, I look at his death. I look at how his followers lived, those that saw him live and love and die and rise again. When I look at the evidence, the only reasonable conclusion that I can come up with is that Jesus actually is who God said he was, who he said he was, and who his followers believed that he was. The sinless one, the spotless sacrificial lamb that Isaiah was talking about. The one that took on all the sins of the world, all the fear, all the frailty, all the shortcomings, all the brokenness. He took it all on for all people so that all people can have life. Philip began with that very passage and he told him the good news about Jesus. That's the Jesus he told him about. That's what Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch. But there is something that's hanging in the air of this whole account that is worth attention. If we want to look at the scriptures honestly, there's something that we need to ask. Why was the Ethiopian reading this? Why? Why was he reading about a, a, a sacrificial lamb? Why was he reading something he didn't understand? He admitted, it's like, I don't get what I'm reading. Why? Why spend time on it? And that may be something that we actually, if we're being honest, have asked from time to time. Like, why should I spend time reading about a God I don't understand? I don't get how he acts. I don't get how he works in the world. I don't get, so why should I spend time on it? Why was he? Why was the Ethiopian reading this if he didn't get it? Because I don't think Isaiah 53 was the start. Philip comes up to this blinged out chariot. I know the Bible doesn't say it's blinged out, but he's rolling with, uh, with royalty and he's riding in a chariot. So I assume it was blinged out. It helps me uh, kind of paint a picture for what's going on in the scene. So he goes up to this blinged up chari- chariot and he says, uh, look, what are, you, what, are you, what are you reading? He's like, I'm reading about this lamb who was led to slaughter. I don't understand what it is. I don't get it. But the thing is, he likely had at least a chunk of the book of Isaiah, the scroll of Isaiah, or, or possibly the whole scroll. Those that were wealthy usually had access to more scriptures than, than other people did. And so I don't think Isaiah 53 was the beginning. I think it's possible that Isaiah 56 was the beginning. Just a couple of chapters over. Something that the Isaiah prophet says a couple of chapters over, I think is why he was trying to figure out who this God actually is. Listen to these words and try as best you can to put yourself in his shoes. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give them within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons or daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. The foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to keep, uh, to be his servants. All who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring into my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The eunuch couldn't have children, couldn't have a family in the sense that many of us think of it. And having children in the ancient world and to a 
lesser or greater degree, depending on the culture today, is, is how you secure your future. It's one of the ways that you would know you wouldn't just become a blip in history, that your legacy would live on. So imagine not having a heritage. You have a, you have a, a house, a royal house that you serve in, but you don't have a family heritage. And you don't have a chance at a future. Imagine not having that, but hearing those words. And I know for some of us in this room, uh, let's just be honest, there's probably some of us that are dealing with the struggles of, of being able to have kids. And, and I'm so sorry if that's a struggle for you, but you probably know, even if the circumstances are different, you know what that feels like to, to be unsure about your future and, 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 and your heritage and your legacy and those types of things. And, and, you, and, you, and you probably want a family, maybe you want a family and you can't have that and the, the pain that comes from that. And I'm so sorry. But imagine that being your reality and then hearing this, the Bible, God's word had spoken directly to him. It wasn't, it wasn't a, a veiled reference. It spoke directly to him and his situation. So this is a guy who was oftentimes in the margin, but no longer. He read about a God who invites in the outsider. And his house is going to be a house of prayer for all nations. This is a God like no other God. This is almost certainly why he was in Jerusalem worshiping. And it's almost certainly why he continued to read the scriptures, even though he didn't fully understand it. Because why wouldn't you want to know more about a God who invites you into his family? Not because you're perfect. Not because you have it all together, not when you come from the right background. No, he invites in the imperfect and those who don't have it all together and those who don't come from the right background. And by the way, the eunuch being in Jerusalem worshiping was actually an answer to prayer. When Solomon uh, dedicates the first temple, he calls all the people together and they, uh, they, they basically are going to just have a party at the temple. And he says, before we party, we should pray. Um, so kids, if your parents pray before meals and you're like, this goes on forever, uh, read 1 Kings 6 through 8. That's a long prayer, right? And so um, a section of that prayer, though, as Solomon is praying at this dedication, it says this. This is his prayer to God. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people, Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name. I love this. For they will hear about your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear them from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigner asks of you, God, so that all people of the earth may know your name. It's a different structure. The temple had been rebuilt, but it's the same God. See, sometimes it doesn't start with knowing he is the lamb pierced for our transgressions or even having any idea what that even means. Sometimes it starts with seeing a God who in his grace invites you in after being outside for a long time. Do you feel outside? Do you feel on the margins? Do you feel left out? Either because of some, someone else's actions or your own actions. The scriptures tell us that life and death is in the power of the tongue. And so if someone's told you you're worthless for long enough, you probably believe it. Or maybe uh, something you've done and, and you know that it doesn't line up with, with God's best for you or what he wants for you and you know that he can't be pleased with you because you're not following him and that makes you sad. Look, it breaks his heart too. The invitation is to come in and get to know a God who says you don't have to be alone or outside anymore. 
I have, in fact, I have a name for you better than son or daughter. You know how much you love your kids. If you have kids or if you have parents that love you, like you know what that's like. God says, I've got, I've got better than that. My love's even bigger than that. Just come in. The eunuch wanted to know more about God because he was written into the pages of his book. And if you've ever wondered, so are you. So the eunuch hears about this inviting God, a God who welcomes not just the foreigner, but welcomes him specifically. Like it's not just an idea, it's him specifically. And so he heads to Jerusalem to find out more about this God, to find out the truth about him. And the truth, like it always does, leads him to Jesus. He's the son of God. The second question we ask people when they walk into the water, do you trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? John uh, Jesus in John 14 says, I'm the way. So he didn't just say, believe in my ideas. He says, trust me, put your trust in me, put your faith in me. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. Some of us hear that as a command, like, oh yeah, we should walk by faith and not by sight. It's not a command, it's an observation. It's how things are. It's a fact. Faith isn't a choice. What or in whom we put our faith in is a choice. But there's no such thing as a life not built on faith. Only different foundations we build on. The atheist lives by as much faith as the Christian does. And so the question is, what faith is going to guide you? Is faith in, faith in yourself? Faith in your intellect? Some people do that. Faith in, in your work or your ability to generate stuff? to accumulate stuff, to own things. And, and so we'll say that. I'll put my faith in that because that's where I'll find life and wholeness and health. If I accumulate more things, that's, I'll put my faith there. Or do we put our faith in someone who did all that was needed and more than we could possibly imagine so that we could live free? That's what we do as Christians. We trust him for forgiveness because this sin thing, it wrecks, it wrecks stuff that we can't put back together on our own. Remember that good news from a few weeks ago? We kicked off this early act series at Pentecost where the church came to life. 3,000 people were saved the day that Peter stands up at Pentecost, people from all over the world, and he, and, he, and he preaches the first Christian sermon. And that first Christian sermon was this, God will meet you where you are. He'll tell you the truth about yourself, which is bad news, right? Things aren't all right inside you, but he'll bring good news into that truth about you that there's forgiveness for everywhere we fall short. And remember, the gospel isn't real until you use the personal pronoun, until I recognize I need Jesus to take on the cross for me. That's what we mean when we talk about salvation. That's what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. That that was his activity and we get free we get freed from a life that, that says to us constantly, like, you're not good enough. You could be better if you buy this thing, consume this thing, look this certain way, act this certain way, put this cream on your face. You could be better. You won't be good enough because there's going to be another cream next week. But you could start here and you'll be better. There's always going to be something to chase, but, but just get in the rat race, right? We get freed up from that. That's what the Bible means when it talks about salvation. Do you trust Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and for your salvation? When people answer yes to that, really incredible things can happen. There's some disagreement historically 
about what happened next, next for, the, for the Ethiopian after he was baptized. But uh, there's some credible witness in 180 AD, Irenaeus, who was one of the church fathers, was doing a commentary on Acts chapter 8, and he adds this line. This is important. Uh, the Ethiopian man was also sent into the regions of Ethiopia to preach what he had himself believed. He became a good news teller. That's how he responded. That's the third question we ask people. Is it your intention to follow him all the days of your life? Having heard, he believed. And having believed, he told the Ethiopian became open and available to follow Jesus and to be a witness. And it didn't just change his life, it changed other people's lives as well. So how do we respond to this? And I don't think anybody's off the hook. For some, some of us here in this room, it's time to go out. Maybe even beyond your comfort zone because Christ came for all even those that are very unlike you. It means that those that are unlike you, when you look at me like, man, they don't think the same, they don't talk the same, they don't come from the same place, they're equally loved by Jesus and more like you than you probably think. So if I ask you the question, who's the person that isn't a follower of Jesus that you wish was sitting next to you right now and isn't? And if you can't think of anybody, it's time to go out. There are a million people in our city that don't know Jesus. A million. A million people probably wondering if there's an invitation for them. Maybe the people around you, the people God has given you to love that are in your relational world, maybe they need to know they're written into this book. God wrote them a love letter. Who else is going to tell them they're in here? He said, Jesus, be my witness to the ends of the earth. We should at least go to the end of our relational world. And every empty seat next to you represents an opportunity for it. Are you open? And if you're open, are you available? For some, it's time to go out. For some, it's time to come in, to accept the invitation of his grace. It might start with knowing that you are loved and included and invited in after feeling like an outsider for a long time. It might start there. That's where it started for me. Maybe understanding that Jesus is a lamb uh, that became a sacrifice slain for, for my sin. That maybe that comes next. Maybe that's the next step. Maybe the first step is knowing that God loves you and is inviting you in. Don't stand at a distance because there's more to figure out. And for some, it's time to take the step uh, of baptism. For some, it's just time. As an affirmation of what he's done for you today, people this afternoon will take the step of baptism. They'll, they'll step into the water. We'll ask them those three questions. They'll answer those gospel questions and they'll be baptized and they'll come out of the water and we are gonna cheer like crazy. But here's the beauty. It's only a representative cheering. We cheer in that moment. We celebrate in that moment, but it's only representative of what we do as a community. We continue to cheer each other on toward love and good deeds. That's what we exist for. And so they can know that we're going to continue to cheer them on. You can know if you take that step, we're going to continue to cheer you on. I know some of you might be thinking, you're like, look, I'm just not finished yet. Like, I'm just not there yet. I'm still kind of a mess. I should probably wait. I got a couple of things that I got to figure out. 
They've got to get these things in order. I know that they're not pleasing to God. I've got to figure this thing out and get it all right, and then I'll come back after I clean up in a bit. No, that's the beauty of baptism. Baptism is always more what Jesus has done for us than it can ever be about what we have done for him. You don't have to be all right. He is. That's who he is. So there's no IQ test. There's no physical ability test. There's no check of your bank account. There's no check of your, of your skin color, family of origin, previous action even, to qualify for the love of Christ. It's grace. While you were still far off, he became the bridge for you. Seeing that can change everything about how you see the gospel. And it can be an important step of you walking in faith with him. So as we head toward this afternoon, let's pray for those that are taking the step of being baptized. And I invite you to consider where you need to go out and where you need to come in. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, the gift of this day. Thank you for your word that we could... um, that we could come to it, that we could interact with it, that it could be challenging to us, not just an old document from some time ago, but that matters to us today because we're written in it. I'm grateful for that, God, and and there are people today that are going to take a step of making their faith in Jesus public for the first time, and if not for the first time, probably the, the most public or the loudest way they ever have. And so I just pray for them that they would recognize how loved they are in the process, that they would uh, not lose sight of the fact that they don't have to be complete to take that step because you are who you say you are, a God who saves. And so I just pray that today would be a memorable uh, key marker in their, uh, their faith in you today. I pray that we would be there to cheer them on, that the louder the cheers are, the better. And so I pray that we would all be there. And I pray that as we close our service, we would remember that you are a God who is still building your church and you're still saving this world and you've invited us to be a part of it. I pray that we would honor your commitment to us by committing our lives to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.